Welcome to Meet the Neighbor. I'm Laura Tamayo. Thank you for joining the conversation today. Hi, Ben. Hi. So I want to ask you to do a little exercise with me. I want you to imagine that I am building a museum and I'm curating your life. (laughs) As I walk through your museum, the Museum of Ben Bryant, what do I see? Well, it's all on how you organize it, right? So... I think you'd see galleries, but I think they would go chronologically through my life because that's how I experienced it. And I think that's the best way. And whereas for people who grew up in the same place or or had relatively the same experience, that might get really boring. I think for me, it's not so much, you know, first grade, second grade, it's Germany, then it's moving to Kentucky, then it's moving back to Texas, then, you know, on and on, then moving back to Germany and living in San Francisco. And so I think as you move from one place and one culture and one time, whether it's the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, you can sort of experience it the way I did, because I think that tells you a lot about who I am. Yeah. And tell me, just because not everybody knows, but why all the moving around? (laughs) I wasn't on the lamb. My (laughs) father is a career army officer. He's a retired general. He wasn't at the time I was a child, of course. But when I was born, he was guarding the border with uh, what was then Czechoslovakia and Germany. And so... I was born in Nuremberg, Germany, which is the nearest big city to where my parents lived. And uh, he spent his entire career in the army. So when I went off to college, uh, he was back in Germany. And so I sort of started and, and ended childhood in different parts, very different parts of Germany with different states and cultures. But I lived all kinds of places in between. I'm also from a very multicultural family. And that is wonderful because it's given me influences. My grandmother is Chinese. My grandfather's culturally Hawaiian because he grew up in Hawaii and uh, before it was a state. And that's those. that's a grandmother on my dad's side grandfather on my mother's side. And then my other grandmother is a black Texan, but of course, like most African-Americans today has a mixed lineage. And and my other grandfather was one of the first black Marines, even though he's very light-skinned and also part white. So the Anglo sides of us are actually not so Anglo. They're they're mostly Celtic, they're Irish. And, uh, And those traditions are very strong. That upbringing sort of influenced me in my travels and my profession. I purposely chose jobs where I could travel for a living, and that's brought me to even more places, Australia, Korea, and that's also where you'll find me when I have free time or free money since <laughs> <laughs> on a plane somewhere new. And so through all of that, I'm just uh, I'm very grateful to have learned so much about myself and about other places along the way. So in our museums, if I could picture how these different cultural influences in your life show up, what does that look like in your life? I feel like it, it's it's a pathway. It's like one of those old treasure maps where the dashes that take you to each stop and each stop is a new adventure. And once you've done what you need to do there, you move on to the next one. That's often how life felt. And it really does feel how in a video game, sometimes when you go to another level, it's it's designed completely differently. It might be tropical, whereas the last one was a jungle or or so on and so forth. That's exactly what it's like in many ways, especially if you're a kid moving from Bavaria in Germany to, you know, fairly rural Kentucky, you know, or what it's like living in San Francisco and then moving to rural Kansas, you know, uh, 
those kinds of, of changes were great because they made me very conscious of the differences in the culture, the differences in the place, and that people can vary widely. The ethnic, the the national origin, the languages spoken, the food eaten in each of those different places, particularly, you know, sort of pre-internet. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, and it's a great thing about mass communication, that we all get exposed to more things and we standardize in a way. But it's, you know, every 10 years you go back in American history, of course, far before my life, you have a little less of that. So the places are even more distinct and and hold on a little bit more to their culture. And so I feel like I was very blessed. So as you travel through the museum, I think that would be the thing. It would it sometimes might be jarring as you finish up one place. And I would like to it's such a fun exercise because I think I would like to present it in a way of seeing it through a child's eyes and then a teen's of eyes. Of course, because that's how you it's a kind of parallel. It. You know, yeah. it's, it's a very different thing to experience, for example, class division and racism and the legacy of the deep south but also the deep catholic roots and the deep traditional roots and the creole and cajun influences of living three years in a very rural louisiana when it's also entering puberty it's 11 to 13 it's a very insecure time where you're trying to figure out your identity and you already have several that you've been celebrating but now you're in a place that really is saying what are you Every few minutes. And where even being military versus townie is suddenly a big deal. So I think experiencing each place through, that's why I like chronological, not just just geographical. Because, yeah, I lived in Germany different times. And I've worked in Germany and traveled to Germany. But each time I was there, it was a different state. It was a different place. It was a different food. But it was also a different place in my life. When you're born in one place, it's very different than the experience of a place when you're 17 And that's a very sort of magical age for a Central European, especially Germans, because you're a grown adult. You could travel. You know, by 11, you can walk and take trains and go across town and do all these things by yourself to this day. And so to be 17 in Germany is to have the whole world at your feet. My mother, having spent a lot of her childhood in Germany as well with her military father, celebrated that. So I had different experiences of each place. The Berlin Wall, my dad's guarding the border when I'm young, but it had fallen by the time I was graduating high school. And so it was a very different experience altogether. And then as I continued to travel, I mean, I've been back and forth to South Korea in the last few years. And, you know, beginning with the Obama administration and moving into the Trump administration where the geopolitics of the North Korean-South Korean relationship and the American relationship has changed. And visiting Mexico when I was 18 is very different from visiting Mexico now. And so I think that as you would travel, you'd have whatever adventure in real life. I like museums where there are things for people to touch and to taste and to experience and for kids to get something out of it as much as the adults. So I think we would have maybe an adventure and a quest and then we'd move on to the next thing. And then in the end, I would love to hear what people think. With all of this you've experienced, where do you think he's going to go next? Because maybe they'll give you some great ideas. That's very cool. So um, give me a soundtrack for this museum. Oh, my goodness. I think it would be as variable as as the place because uh, it's funny. People often say, how do you have so wide a variety of musical tastes? And I also have this other strange phenomenon. Sometimes I'm in the mood for something. So I have hundreds of songs, you know, on my MP3 player. And there are some I won't listen to for years. Or I'll listen to an album for a while and then just be done with it. I'll get nostalgic for it and just be done with it. But I don't tend to, just because something's my favorite song, playing it again doesn't necessarily excite me, you know, and I have to be in that place. And I really think that was because in my life, in order to be fully open to the new adventure, you had to sort of put away 
the things. And if they came back, if it circled back, whether it was the music or the food or the weather or the, yeah, the weather affects the kind of clothes you have, you know, the trends, the things that were cool the kids wore. And so the same thing was true with music. So the only thing that didn't work, I can tell you, was I moved to Louisiana and everybody loved the Eagles. Everybody loved the Eagles. Mm -hmm. And I tried so hard. I've got all the albums out from the library back when you could check cassettes and things out of the library and listen to them. And I could never make myself love the Eagles. No. But on that, I love I, I didn't dislike them, just could never make myself love them the way people in, in Eastern Louisiana love them. But beyond that, I think that the Europop, my affinity for Europop really comes from the time that I spent in Europe where you would see, and it was, it was perfectly common for adults to uh, as the, my affinity for K-pop, the sort of the the sweetness of seeing you know fifty, sixty year old men in suits dancing along with teenagers like cheerleaders, you know American cheerleaders, and getting excited about those kinds of things. Country music for sure. There are parts of the country that just don't get it. But if you're if you're from Texas, so you live in Texas, even if it's not your favorite form of music, you have such an affinity. It's tied to the memory. So I think it would be more a soundtrack in the true sense. As I went through each gallery, I would pick a song from each time period and place. So not necessarily what was my favorite song at the time, but was my favorite song that also represented memories or a place there. But uh, you would definitely see. And then I was a DJ. I was a DJ in my very first professional communications job. So I was exposed to a lot of music that makes me smile, but maybe wouldn't be on my iPod. Tell me about that DJ job. Uh, well, that was crazy. I was working as a news intern in Austin, Texas, and the 96 Olympic bombing happened, something that's in the news right now with the new Richard Jewell movie. And I called and said, hey, are we doing updates on this? It, it was, you know, it was later in the night on a weekend. And they said, what are you talking about? There was a bombing. So I said, well, I'll go in there and I'll call and see. And then eventually they said, well, you can go in the air since it's overnight. And we don't, and honestly, nobody wants to come in and we don't know if this is going to be a big deal or not. And somebody wrote to the newspaper and said, that was really cool. It was a very scary sort of thing. And that, that guy's voice was so calming. And within a week, they had offered me a job and I got to do all kinds of things. And again, I'm just eternally curious mm-hmm. and I like talking to people. So I got to host the Sunday public affairs show, which it's a requirement of all you know, licensed radio stations or television stations that they have so much public affairs programming. So they're often buried in, in the morning on Sunday. But for me, it was a playground. It was a chance to to meet and talk to people about issues that I thought were important and to approach them from a younger point of view. And so that was exciting. And it made me realize that I could get paid to talk for a living, which is <laughs> You're probably a revelatory thing for me and probably a lifesaver. <laughs> Pretty cool. So um, with all the moving around, do you actually remember, because like, you keep saying that you, you anchor your memories in like the songs and thinking of the different places where you were living. Do you remember every place you were for every holiday? I mean, I, I'll just say Christmas because I know it's Christmas is what you guys celebrate. Sure, sure. So every Christmas, do you remember where you were? Probably with a little effort. I mean, I would say that there are lots of Christmases that recur because we would go home. My, both my grandparents retired. They're both uh, generals in the Army, and they both retired to Washington, D.C. So we would go back to Washington uh, a lot of Christmases, maybe just under half of them. No, maybe less fewer than that. Uh, just under half if you consider the time we lived in Washington. But it does help. I think I have stronger memories than most because the memories are tied to specific houses. I have more anchors. So it's not 
trying to differentiate between six Christmases where the Christmas tree was in the same room in the same house. And I'm just trying to remember like, was that the year I got this? Or was that the year grandma came over? It's actually quite clear for me because if it's the house in Texas, well, then there was only one possible year it could have been. If it was the house and it was the time I hosted people in my apartment in Texas, that would be only one possible year. And so I have very distinct memories. Also in a military family, you're not always near the same family. And so sometimes you have it with friends or sometimes you have it with the other extended family that are near you geographically. And so I think that all those differentiators, the, the chaos, if you haven't figured out chaos is clearly the theme of my life. Uh, there's no way to organize it other than chronologically, but remembering who the people were, the house or all those things. The benefit of that is I think I remember them more strongly than most because mm. it's very hard for any experience I ever had, any holiday, Valentine's Day, Christmas, Easter, or summer break, uh, or the local holidays from the places where we live that don't exist or aren't as prominent elsewhere, whether they be uh, St. Nicholas Day in Germany or Juneteenth in Texas. All of those things are so distinct and unique that I mm -hmm. think they have a, a firmer place in my mind maybe than most people. And that's a really lucky thing. Yeah, and I think in a lot of times it, it involves planning a flight, but it wasn't always the same flight because you weren't necessarily always in the same place and you were going to visit family that maybe had relocated as well. Because another thing that's kind of unique about your family is that you're not just a military brat. Both of your parents come from military yes. families as well, right? And my brother is career military, my, and both brothers-in-law, and my sister graduated from West Point a few years ago. So we are all on the move, not just one at a time. We are, even I. Now, I realized I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 20 years, which is the longest I've lived anywhere. But everyone laughs when I say that because I spend sometimes up to half the year traveling. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you live there, and I'm doing little air quotes because I know that half that the time where I'm my storage you unit known as a home is. I'm at the airport. I'm on my way to fill in the blank. And so you kind of, yes, you live there technically, sort of, I guess. <laughs> I do think, though, in many ways that that was a natural outcropping of the life that I grew up in. You, know, about that. you and I have had a conversation before about how some people have roots and some people have wings. But I think if you happen to be someone who has wings, that meant you never longed for roots when you were being shuttled everywhere. If you had the benefit of, of having a life that aligned with that, with that mm -hmm. you know, sort of personality type, and then to have to stop. I think it's another reason I went into consulting and contracting and things like making movies, which a lot of people say, well, you make podcasts and movies and you, and you do these projects for the government and you do all of these things and you write and you freelance. Isn't that uncertain? And it is. It's stressful. It's uncertain. Even when I worked for major companies and employers as a consultant, they would put you with a, a client, a general or a politician or something for you know, a year or two or three, if that much. Sometimes it was 45 days. But I think change is my constant. So anytime I'm somewhere else, I not only find myself, have you ever written, had to, in this digital age, it's hard to, to think back to when we used to write book reports longhand. Mm -hmm. And I look at, I, I find something I wrote in childhood and I think, how did I keep it up, the writing, the physical act of writing for 15 pages? Because now I write a Christmas card and my hand gets tired and my <laughs> and my handwriting gets loopier and messier as we go on. The nuns would be horrified, absolutely horrified. And I think that that's me anywhere, too long in one place. You know, the handwriting gets loopier the, and messier and the focus gets less uh, because I'm used to, from birth, refreshing. Yeah. If there's not something new to learn, if there's not something to adjust to, if there's not a little bit of fear and anxiety uh, to draw upon, then uh, 
I don't know. I think I get a little bored. Yeah, and no, I know what you're talking about. Have that um, urge to travel, to to see new things, to be in a place where you just don't understand what anyone is saying, and it feels so exciting in so many ways. You, you crave it when you've been in one place for too long. At least I those do. of us that have wings, we tend to be that way. I think. And and it's funny, you know. Sometimes you're someone who. What a, one of my favorite movies is a, is a movie called The Accidental Tourist, and it's it's about a guy. Uh, it, it comes I read from the book. Is, my favorite book as well by Ann Tyler. I read that at 10 years old, and the movie came out the next year. And as an aside, it does also involves travel, and it also involves holidays. But specifically, it involves a meeting of two of those people. The protagonist is a man. Uh, I don't know if they say this in the movie, but it's in the book. They talk about his whole accidental tourist travel series is for people who don't like to travel. That's right. The How to find most American food. How to avoid having the most foreign experience in all the major capitals. And it says, while armchair travelers dream of flight, uh, you know, traveling armchairs dream of staying put. Yeah. You know? and, and so I've always thought how hard that would be to have that kind of tension. And I'm really blessed because I have always been a traveler and I've always been able to travel. And I come from a family of those people and the people in my life who've adopted family, the extended family, have always understood and supported that. I do think though that going back to something you said earlier, the fact that it gels well with your personality makes a big difference because yeah. not everybody can live that life. Even when you're born into it and it's your normal not everyone can fall in love with it and say, I'm carrying this into adulthood a lot of times. Because I've met other people that have grown up in military families that know. I mean, as soon as they can get stability, that's exactly what they want. They never want to travel again. They want to buy one house, live and die there, done. So personality yeah, has a the lot traveling to do with it. Yeah. And the truth is, anytime you have, you know, the military is millions of people. And, you know, it's missionaries. It's, it's lots of people. And the truth is, a lot of times a life gets chosen for you, especially if you're a child, because you have you automatically are born into the life that your parents have. And that can be something they chose and they revel in, but it's just not you. I've always known that I'm a very lucky person to A, have a family that largely were all the same, you know, in this way. And to different degrees. But I, I do think too that my parents worked very hard. So we would arrive in a in a new place. And the way we would adjust would be by jumping in, by leaning in. If there was a pecan festival or if there was a forestry festival, if there was an annual event, if there was a town Christmas party, if there was a Founders Day, uh, if there was a community theater production, we got involved in those ways. Now, we weren't overscheduled, but we simply, if if there's a craft fair, if there's something there, we would mosey on down there, you know, and... You'd explore I, very much so, so that we could – now, what's interesting is there was never the promise, because I think it would not have been an unrealistic one, of becoming part of that community. To the extent that we were ever felt less than outsiders, that was gravy. That was bonus. That was, as we would say in Louisiana, lagnap. But what it was is that we could appreciate, we could explore. The exploration, the journey was the, was the end. You know what I mean? It was, the, it was to explore. So that had to do with – so if there is a local holiday – so the Lunar New Year is very big in san francisco and it also is tied to my culture you know as with the, the chinese grandmother who was not present at the time when i lived there she was across the country so my mother who is not chinese american worked very hard for us to 
explore and learn everything there was. And we would go downtown into Chinatown because that was something that we could do there that we couldn't do the same way in any of the other places we had lived. And the same thing. I mean, I gained my appreciation for beef. I learned not to oversauce or overseason a great piece of fresh beef when I lived in Kansas and would talk to ranchers. And we would go out and we, she would make friends with people who did the the most local things you can imagine, because I think she's an incredibly curious person and she passed that on. So I think that that can help make it bearable for people who don't have that inclination, particularly if you, if somebody were listening, for example, and their children don't have the same spark. There's ways you can still make it rewarding because they, they have to go with you. The army says, go to Italy, they have to go with you. And you certainly do see those families that never leave the Navy base or never leave the air base or never leave the army post. But in general, if you can teach someone to be curious and view it as an extended vacation or an extended course or extended something else, and if you can emphasize sort of what can we do here that we are not able to do anywhere else? What is the experience we can have that if we don't have it now, we may not get to have it again, or you know, no one else in our family will have this experience, so we'll be the only person who gets to do that. I think you can at least make it exciting and enriching, and that way when people settle down, they'll have a lot of great stories and a whole bunch of t-shirts. So did you guys always live on base? Well, first of all, in the Army, it's not a base. It is now. You get joint bases, but it's a post. But um, we did not always. So in Germany, yes. But that was an, a unique situation in the sense that sometimes the official Army housing was slightly off outside the gate, but still grouped together. In other places, it was just a mix. If housing is available, uh, if you were on the priority list, there were places like we were in Louisiana. We lived in a very rural, former sort of artist commune that had become a, a subdivision area and an even more rural part of the rural Louisiana we lived. And we lived there for a year until housing became free on post, and then we moved on post. But yeah, so now my sister, her experience is different. They tend to try to reserve housing for the people who need it most, but they have a lot of options. Either there isn't housing available. So I think that that was good. And I would actually say there was never... Um, a huge difference, but I would argue that I preferred living on post because it gave you that kind of anchor mm-hmm. of everyone who has similar experiences. And, and, you know, and of course there was uh, hospitals and those things, but you could explore together. You could band up, you know, parents with, parents with young children could go out and go to the forestry festival together, you yeah, know, you could get more and, connected those kinds of to that. and experiencing them together. It's like traveling with family. Yeah. Yeah. I can connect you with know. that army community a lot more directly. Whereas your sense of being an outsider in some of the places, such as the rural Louisiana place where there aren't a whole lot of outsiders, is very marked when you're the only outsider, the only military person living there in a town where the families have lived there for generations. Right. And everyone knows everybody and their established norms. And that probably was more true, you know, given being mixed race, that probably was also a greater feeling. But then again, I would say you move to D.C. where you're living in the suburbs and everybody's moving in and out all the time and the, and the houses are turning over all the time with diplomats and military folks and mm-hmm. changes of administration. It just felt like everybody else. So I think that that was just part of the adventure. So going back to personality and now considering all of these things that we've talked about, what were you actually like as a child? Pretty much the same as I am now. Actually, I would say I'm the same as I am now, though a little less polished, refined, and mature. So I'm actually quite proud of the growth that I've made. But I think I've always been very outgoing. I've always been very talkative. I'm an oldest child. I'm an oldest child of several children. And new children came along along the way. My parents were very open to official and unofficial fostering of people who needed, you know, just take, you know. There's a family emergency, we have to go home, and so somebody's going to stay and go to school for the last two months, or maybe someone had extra needs, or as my parents became more senior, and they had responsibility for families within their organizations, their units, as we call them, you know, you might have someone who's 
their house is flooded or they they have some personal concerns or whatever. And so mom would open the house for them to come stay with us. What was that like for you? It was great. Like, how did you experience it as a kid? I experienced it. And, and, and along the way, by the way, so when I was 11 years old, one sister was born. And when I was 16 years old, another sister was born. And so along the way, there was not only a lot of change, there were a lot of different things. I think there was a part of me that became a little bit more of an administrator, I think. And there was a part of me that became a little bit more of a third caretaker as well. But it's just pattern matching. It's saying, well, what do my parents do when we have a guest? What do, what does mom? And, you know, as, as you get more senior in the army, you have more social responsibilities and more, uh, uh, you're more likely to be called in the middle of the night if there's an emergency or, or something like okay. that. And so to that extent, especially when you're 16, when there's a new baby, you, you're sort of part of Team Bryant, you know. And <laughs> and so I think I think I, but I, I wouldn't say that's that's that unusual for an oldest child in a large family other than my family changed and turned over because it was the army family as well. It was the that continues to this day. You know, people will come stay with us. It's just who we are. It's how we roll. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that sometimes uh, when you're celebrating holidays, as we're about to right now, you've got exactly that people that are coming into your life, maybe perhaps people that have been adopted by you, you adopted one another and they're part of your holidays as well. I think that idea of the Friendsgiving, mm -hmm. it resonates with me on one end, but it often, when you see the pictures of those things, they're often people peer groups, you know, for me, it's, it's a little bit different. It's like there were there were new uncles and aunts, which is often common in a lot of ethnic families. And in fact, in Asian and Polynesian families, you call them uncles and aunts, auntie and uncle. But it's funny when I think of something like a Friendsgiving, which is a very trendy concept now, and which I wholly support. I think when we think of a lot of the ways we celebrate holidays today and these concept of the family you choose or Friendsgiving, it's kind of funny for me to see them sort of expressed as trends or options. You know, here's a new option you can consider, because for me, it's sort of always been like that. But it's a little bit different in the sense that often the, when you see these images of the family you choose or Friendsgiving, they tend to be people your own age, young professionals or other young parents. Mm -hmm. And for me, sometimes there were stand-in grandparents or bonus aunts and uncles, which is very common in Asian and ethnic families. In Asian and Polynesian families, you tend to call them auntie and uncle as well. There were sometimes other kids who became like brothers and sisters or cousins. And then they might change out because pre-internet, you didn't always get to keep up with people that same way. And so you just had to keep sort of an open heart and reconstruct there. And it was particularly important in the military because not everybody had the same amount of money or the same amount of time or the same amount of leave, the same amount of ability to get away. And so people could find themselves in very rural places away from their family, often sometimes for the first time you know, if they were newlyweds or if they were new to the military. And so by just keeping your heart open and remembering when that was you, there's a great way. And I think that's one of the reasons you often hear when people say things like the military family or the army family or why you might see someone who was a World War II army veteran seem to have such close affinity for a young person in uniform in the army right now. I think it's because we all had those sort of common experiences. And even though we didn't have them synchronously, so that's our culture, that's our place, that's our home. And to me, that's very important. Have you had an opportunity to stay in touch with any of the people that you grew up around? Because you, you did move around a lot, but I mean, I think sometimes, and I have heard this from, I guess, other people that are in the Army or Navy, I've got friends in both, that sometimes you move away from a place and you end up back there and you run into people that have done a cycle as well and they're also returning and you're neighbors again and you haven't been neighbors but neither one of you have been living there for the last couple of years. <laughs> 
Oh, absolutely. Like, and it continues. It mm -hmm. continues well after you're out of that life in an active way. I worked on a television show called Anacostia, and I was talking with one of the actors, and we were talking about Korea, and he says, my mom was stationed in Korea, but then we went to Fort Polk, Louisiana. And I said, oh, we were at Fort Polk, Louisiana. It turns out he moved there the year after I moved away. However, that meant he knew all the same people. And so we had so many common memories of places, of the roller rink, of, oh, this guy used to talk a big game, but he could never back it up. We had all of those things in the same. That's so cool. I mean, you guys had, it's a shared memory, but it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't actually. It wasn't synchronous. Right. At the same time. And you but see this with the military high schools. They often have all years reunions because really what you have in common, because some people are only there for a year. So Honestly, I may have as many memories of you as a nun from that one year I was there at, at East American High School that I do of someone who was there a different year than I was. But what we had was, do you remember walking during lunch to the post office? Do you remember doing this? Do you remember being nervous when, when dads would be deployed? So we end up finding that we have so much more in common. But the, the benefit is social media. It's really social media. It's one of the reasons that I, for all the reservations, don't think I could let it go because I've rediscovered so many people and they 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 find me i find them people you think whatever happened to and yeah there were the people there were the handful of people you know count on one hand the people that you exchanged letters with and then when you got to college you exchanged emails with but then life got in the way or didn't and you stayed in touch but the right. truth is the vast majority of people that i know from childhood are a gift that social media gave me because that's not something a military kid would have yeah yeah i was in a military kid but i also have an international life and I'm able to keep up, not just with friends, my family, you know, we live on different continents. And so just being able to see, you know, where they've been on vacation and put little notes and, hey, where are you going to or call me later. I just, it's, it's a very cool connection that I don't know that we would have a chance to develop otherwise. So I'm right there with you. I have my reservations about social media as well. But, but yeah, when you have family spread out like that, it's, it's such a huge advantage in terms of being able to share some of those little mundane things that actually make for the connection, right? Like actually help you build that connection with people that you love. So with all these people coming in and out of your life and all of your moving, your holidays, I'm sure have been influenced by the places and the people that have been part of your growing up. How has that come into your traditions? I would say that in two ways. I'd say one, one tradition is just absolute flexibility. What I'll find that in this time is we do things like eventually we developed the tradition of decorating the Christmas tree on December 24th. And it's fascinating to me because that happened not out of any sort of cultural or ethnic tradition. It happened because that's when everybody was most likely to be home. Anybody who was going to be there would be there by then. Uh, other ones are, are cultural and ethnic. They're either from the fact that when you don't have the influences of a hometown, two things become very important. One, I believe, and my family believed in embracing where you were. And two, the ones of your family of origin or your culture of origin, keeping in touch with those as you move away from that home base is important. So I would say that we have a lot of a sort of Irish Catholic traditions, a lot of Irish Catholic songs. My grandfather growing up in Hawaii, we have a lot of those traditions. And then of course, 
my mother spending a lot of her childhood in Germany, uh, me spending mine, things like St. Nicholas Day, Christmas being 12 days of Christmas, you know, that uh, really focusing on Advent and preparing for Christmas. Because in Bavaria, in Germany, Bavaria was a deeply Catholic Munich, you know, means place of the monks. So even if you're not particularly religious, the religious influence on the way that the holiday is celebrated is very important. And so this idea of... Um, of really preparing yourself for Christmas and then celebrating it for 12 whole days and stopping on Epiphany. So that's Three Kings Day. So there's little gifts on the 6th of January to end sort of Christmas. And then I would say other things that family becomes very important when you live a life like that. So holidays that aren't necessarily family holidays for others are for us Valentine's Day. St. Patrick's Day is a wonderful time where we reconnected with the Lunar New Year. Those are all family dinner days and they have their own recipes and their own traditional approaches and, and, and their own gifts and their own sentiments that we express and whoever's available. And and I've seen now with my siblings recreating those traditions in their families as well. But for a lot of people, you know, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, even Lunar New Year, they're more commercial holidays and they're more reasons to go out. For us, they're anytime when you don't get to see your family that much, you're so far away from your family. Anytime you can celebrate family and, and a holiday gives you a, it's like having a timeshare. If planned correctly or if approached correctly, it can be your reminder to stop. You got to do it. You got to, today's the day it's on the calendar. You've got to do it or else you'll lose the opportunity and it won't come around for another year. And so I would say that that, and then the adopting, like I said, staying flexible. So adopting whatever holidays are on the ground, whatever they may be. That doesn't always mean that they have the same religious or spiritual or historical significance, Mm -hmm. you know, that they might have for the locals. But with just a little bit of empathy and a whole lot of joy, you can often, if not not make it important to you, you can understand why it's important to them. And that can make it a very enriching experience as it is. Juneteenth, obviously, it's the, you know, which is the day that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation very belatedly made it to Texas, is celebrated in Texas as a state holiday. And so when I was a DJ, I used to ride in Juneteenth parades and and do things like that. And and it was a big part of my history as an African-American to understand that, especially as an African-American with African-American ancestors from Texas. However, you know, it was not something that I'd known that much about other than just the word until I got there. And so already being sort of predisposed to jump right in and, and not feel othered and not feel excluded to know my place. It's not like you run in there and you sit there and you say, you know, somos mexicanos on a Cinco de Mayo, you know, when people sit there and like, really? No, you aren't. But to jump in there and sit and say, why is this so awesome? Why is this so important? And then find whatever your attachment to it. And sometimes your attachment is just loving that all these people you love get so much history or, 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 or enrichment or feel such a connection to it. And sometimes you find like with Juneteenth, your own connection to your own history, but it all starts with being open that holidays don't have to mean one thing. And Americans don't have to celebrate only one thing or remember only one thing. And Europeans, you can, you can enjoy a bestia day, uh, parade as much as anybody else and sort of liken it to your experience or your understanding. Yeah, and enjoy it with the people that are celebrating. Now, I know there's one tradition that you've told me about that I'd like to, um, I'd like you to talk about just because I love that your family has. You've got the the Advent calendar, the German um, yes, Advent calendar yes. with the drawers. So, Advent calendars are very important in German culture, and so one of the things you'll find is that you do have the you know, the, the kind that you think of in America, which is the, sort of the flat paper ones that are like little sort of trays, and and you've got candy and the candy i will say the chocolate's always better in germany always 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 but there's also 
a tradition of advent calendars that are large. They can have drawers or they can have pouches or sacks. And over the years, we've owned all of those. They're wooden. They're permanent. You can make them for your family. And that's when it can really get fun because you move beyond, you know, those sort of little milk chocolates. And sometimes you can sit there and write a little note to each other. Other times you can have an ornament, you know, that's there. Then we'll hang that ornament on the tree. But it really, I think when there's a little bit more to reach on to a little bit more of an experience to have it helps with that once again that idea in germany is very important is celebrating advent of preparing yourself and getting ready and developing a little excitement for christmas and i would say that i probably appreciate it more now than ever before because life moves so fast now and there are so many competing priorities and there's so many things that if you don't watch it you can turn around and say, it's Christmas already? Oh my God, I need to do my shopping. Oh my God, I need to do this. I didn't even put up ornaments this year. I mean, I didn't even put up decor- half the decorations this year. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just put up the tree. And when you have a deliberate way that you sort of start the day by saying, okay, it's day you know, two, and now we have this many to go, and it's day three, and now we have this many to go, it keeps you in that spirit. It reminds you to reset it each day. And so if your connection with Christmas is commercial or whether it's um, spiritual or deeply, deeply religious or all of the above, that reminder to sort of start mindfully and think about it each day really creates that sense of anticipation uh, and that sense of sort of getting ready for it. And it does remind you, oh, my goodness, it's day 10. I need to get that, you know, that shopping done. I meant to do that. Uh, so yeah, it can so, be organizational, but I love the fact that it gives you a chance to savor the holiday, to yeah, just really, really enjoy does. it. And I think that you're right. Sometimes we're moving at such a high, such a fast pace that it just kind of gets away from us. And before you know it, it's it's a long to-do list that you've done in a hurry and now it's over. And you didn't really get a chance to just really live it. And it's another reason I think as we move, a lot of people are asking sort of what is the appropriate place of religion in our society today? What is the appropriate place of spirituality? What is the appropriate place of these sort of historical organized religions? And particularly the Catholic Church in our part of the world, North America and Europe, has had such an influence on these traditions. And one of the things I find is that there can be value in them if you adapt them, even if that connection to the more organized aspect of it is not resonant with people. Some of these traditions, like the Advent calendar, you know, the concept of Advent is a great universal one, even if Christmas is just your time to give gifts and enjoy it's and to take a break from life. Something that reminds you to take a break from life, to enjoy it, to make to get all your shopping done so you're not stressed out at the end. That's great. Something 12 days of Christmas, you know, yes, that's that's a religious concept inherently, and it ends on on the epiphany, but it also reminds you that you know you don't have to sit there and get up in the morning and rush and get get all the kids done and take care of everything, then serve all the food and do all of these things, and then the day is over before you get to know it. And a lot of people say, I host, or now that I'm a parent. Christmas doesn't feel like for me. Well, Christmas is 12 days. Build that time in for you. Build in your date nights. Go to your concerts. Do those things. And as I said with my family, with St. Valentine's Day, you know, or St. Patrick's Day, sometimes going back to the roots of those things can be very useful. And I think that's been a very good way for me to sort of modernize my concept of faith coming from a traditional sort of Catholic upbringing, but sort of modernizing it for today, which is when I'm not necessarily as tied to the routines and and it's not as much of a community practice as much how can i get out of it and so i always sort of look to the intent so buying chocolates and 12 roses for whomever i might be with at that time is important and it is very special it is important to do those things but also that reminder that the people who love you and all these different forms of love and have been around forever your family and friends 
that's also very special too. And so I think my experience of holidays has also been shaped by the fact that we've had to sort of find what they meant for us because they meant different things for all the different places where we lived. Right. I was actually thinking that because yeah. in Mexico, it's it's, uh, it's not just a dating holiday when you're talking about Valentine's Day, right? We say it's, it's the holiday of love and friendship. And so we do. We, in fact, celebrate it with our friends and family. And I know in college, at least more than once, I gave you a Valentine's Day card. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's just like it, it. So that kind of carries into this American life that we live, right? That we have these other ways of expressing how we feel on these different holidays. And I think that's, that's something that's very cool. I think about living in a place that's got people from everywhere. And imagine what you were just saying there. Now imagine the military is that on steroids at times in terms of the food, in terms of the traditions, in terms of the songs. It particularly was post-World War II when there were lots of posts and bases all over the world. So you had soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines marrying Korean wives and Germans and Italians mm -hmm. and, you know, Filipinos. And so let me tell you, potlucks growing up oh, were yeah. amazing. And holiday potlucks growing up were, if I could get myself in a time machine and just revisit all of those, believe me, I could tell you where I was for each one of those. <laughs> oh my goodness. So can you think of just one or two people, key people, and I know it's going to be really hard for you because not only are you incredibly social, so you know a ridiculous number of people, but on top of the fact you've moved everywhere. So maybe two to three, let's add another one. People that have been really key in shaping who you are, that have really influenced the person that you've become. Well, in some ways, and I don't know if this is what you were, if you would want me to exclude them, but I would say my parents. No, 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 uh, it's whatever it means that, to you. I would say that even more so than the average response, the typical response about parents, because what is one of the things you have when, when everything around, when all the people around you change out every one to three years, the people who don't become even more influential. They become the team that you have. They become the ones that you trust the most. And and that's not to say that every military family had the same experience, but I certainly did. That was the experience that I had. I believe my parents are very smart. I believe they're very compassionate and they and they are complementary in different ways. You know, my mom was the one who was influential and sort of the cheerleader and the instigator for all of our adventures when we would move to a new place. But my dad was right there. His enjoyment was so infectious, you know. And my dad was also someone who his knowledge of history is exceptional. So he would be able to tie our experiences to a place to the context of, of the people who came before us. And so I think that, that both of the combination of those things gave me my most, I think, important quality as an adult, which is curiosity and empathy. And so curiosity combined with empathy has meant that I've had the chance to meet the most amazing people, make friends on planes, trains, museums, be open to new experiences, to try new foods. And not all of them last forever. Not all of them are things that I like, but I don't think I've ever missed an opportunity. And so they are by far the two most influential. And at that point, it becomes such a wide open tie that if only for sheer volume, probably say... No, it's just, it's way too much of a tie because when you're someone who changes out the people in your life, I, I've just been influenced in different ways. And I try to learn, I proactively try to learn and understand as much as I can about myself and from other people in the time that I have. I really treasure the time I have with people because I'm not used to having a whole lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's what lessons can I learn? Sometimes negative lessons, you know, how can I be better at this or why didn't that work out? And so it, it's kind of hard at that point because I, I feel like favoring one longtime friend or one grandparent or one, you know, one boss yeah. would almost, is, you know, especially in a public forum would almost be unfair to the others. So I'm just going to go with my parents. That works. So 
here you are, you've been moving around all over the place. And now high school is over. Like I said, you started in Germany, you ended in Germany, different cities though. Where did you finish high school again? Which city were you in? In Gießen, Germany, which is about uh, 40 minutes north of Frankfurt. And so that's in the center of Germany. That's when you're moving away. All the things that Americans tend to think of as German are Bavarian. That's the area where I was born, and that's the area where I, where I work and visit now the most. <laughs> that's in the south. And so this is where you start to get more commerce and business and the food changes and those things. But yeah, it was, again, wonderful to have two different experiences of Germany. And so there you are, you've just finished high school, or you're wrapping up, you're getting ready to finish high school, and you have to pick where you're going to go to college. How does that decision happen for someone with a life? Oh, it's a very, very sexy story. It's what, <laughs> sta what state are we residents of? Oh, we're residents of Texas, Ben. Oh, like where grandma's from. Yes. We don't pay state taxes there. Perfect. Okay. That's the University of Texas. I applied there. I was accepted December 7th, I think. Oh my very gosh, early. you remember. Very, very early. Yeah. And so at that point, I discontinued uh, applications anywhere else. Nice. And before you moved, had you visited Texas before at least or never? I'd lived at Fort Hood, Texas, and I'd okay. visited family in Houston. And then when we lived in Louisiana, we would drive to Houston both for uh, or fly to Houston, depending on, you know, that was the, the big city where the airport was and everything. And so I had those experiences, but no, I. If I've been to Austin, I think I went to Austin as a very small child to go to the circus once. I have no memories of it. I didn't know a single thing about it. The only thing I knew about the school itself was what you would find in those. Do you remember back then there were college books that you would get in the library that would tell you a little bit about each college and the stats? But I knew that I – see, that's the upbringing there. You know, when every one to three years somebody tells you where you're going next and you get no vote – and you may know a lot about it or not a lot about it. You may hate the idea or love the idea, but you go, you embrace it, and you make it work. The idea of choosing where to go to college and would I like it? And the best example I can give is that before I was accepted to UT, I had intended to apply to or had started the process to apply, to, depending on the school, University of Kansas, Northwestern University of Chicago, and Texas A&M. And anybody who knows anything but the University of Texas and Texas A&M knows that they are very different schools in very different places, very different sort of political philosophies, campus cultures, surrounding cities. I probably would have made it work either way. I think UT was perfect for me because UT was so diverse, so big, so liberal, so everything that the military was, but also everything the military wasn't to allow me to have a completely different experience. So it was, I ended up where I was supposed to be. I'm a weird guy and Austin's a weird place. But that selection, that wide selection kind of tells you how I didn't have an idea of the kind of campus. I didn't want to go to a party school or a public school or a prestigious school versus any other kind of school. I just wanted to go to school. That wide diversity tells you a lot. It's not like I wanted to go to a party school or or a prestigious private school or a, or a conservative school or a liberal school. I just researched the ones that I thought might be good fits or had good journalism programs or whatnot. A&M was primarily the other school, whereas a Texas resident, the other state school I'd heard of. But uh, I ended up where I was supposed to be. What did you think college was going to be like? Because this is, yes, you've lived in Texas before, but this is the first time you're going to be outside of the military bubble. What did you imagine it was going to be like? I didn't have any thoughts at all. The one thing you learned growing up the way I did with the self-awareness I did is that you have no idea. Anything you think it's going to be, it's not going to be, whatever the new place is going to be. So I had no concept of that whatsoever. I just knew I was ready to go. 
you know, often I sometimes think it might have been better for me to stay the year and go to the University of Maryland at Mannheim. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, oh my goodness, spend one more year in Germany, get to explore. But I think for me, striking out and getting to be on my own and be grown. That was the the big appeal to me because I had no concept because I hadn't done college tours. I hadn't done anything like that. It's really hard to do that from Germany. I had no concept. The UT was bigger than most schools. I had no con- – I mean, at the time, I think the largest school in the country, 50,000 students. So I had no none of that small city. That's what the college was like. So my mom and I arrived and, and we walked around and, you know, we had to get an apartment on West Campus and, and that little matchbox. Everything was because I had no preconceived notion. And because my father went to the, the West Point, to West Point, which is the military academy, and my mom went to an all-girls Catholic school that was directly across the street from West Point, their experiences weren't applicable. You know, I didn't grow up hearing stories of going to big state schools. Everything was new and everything was exactly as, as it was. I fell into a really nice routine. It was very different weather, you know, but I knew that. And I fell into a very nice routine of on Saturdays, riding to the mall on the bus, going to the two movies back to back, coming back, stopping and getting uh, groceries, putting them in my luggage and then bringing them back to my apartment until eventually I met people and got more involved and did things. And the thing I would say is that it probably was easier for me for two reasons. I found two places, the Communications Council and uh, the University Catholic Center, that were diverse and gave me some anchors mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have had. With 50,000 people, you have to find your subgroup sure. because otherwise you will be swallowed up. And I will say that you know I completed three and a half years there and I got very sick. And when I returned to school, I didn't have the same sort of energy, a drive, everything was different. And with 50,000 people, nobody's calling you to say, hey, man, I didn't see you in our 300-person class, you know, certainly not the teacher. And so that led to me actually leaving, spending more time recovering, finishing school at a small school up in New York, the last semester at a small school up in New York. And that was right for me then, too. But Austin, international Austin, creative Austin, artistic Austin, and highly curious research University of Austin was exactly where I needed to be. Nice. So taking all of this, now you're a high travel professional, you're a creative. How have these travels and experiences influenced or informed your professional life? I'd say they reinforced my professional life. I would not say they have informed it because I always come from the the idea that there's so much I don't know that I don't know. Because when every couple of years you have your entire world exploded and then reset, you realize, you know, I had no idea. So I'm never one of those people who go, oh, people eat that. Of course they do. People eat. I'm very aware that people everywhere eat a million things that I've never heard of before. You know, I learned that very early in my life or, oh, people believe that. How could they believe that? Well, I can tell you or you can ask because you get disabused of that kind of thing if you're willing to be. Mm -hmm. If you're willing to be, you get disabused of that kind of thing very early. So I would say that the more I have traveled, the more I've expanded Australia, Korea, Panama, the Caribbean, going to places that aren't just Europe or America. I find that the more I have traveled and the more I've expanded my circle, the more I'm just reinforced that you don't know everything. There's so much more to be explored and there is nothing new under the sun. There is no idea that you have that is so clever that someone else hasn't thought about it or, or used it or explained it. And so it's simply just reinforced that if, if you can't find a solution, just go look somewhere else. If you talk to someone else, see it through the eyes of people who, have a, who live on the ocean. See it through the eyes of people who don't have communication infrastructure we have. See it through the eyes – those were lessons, and I credit my parents and, and personality, my education, and going to an international school 
But those were lessons that when I entered the professional world, I felt were a differentiator for me. And everywhere I go reinforces that. And the rest of it's just just gravy. It, it's the ride. You know, the rest of it is just sitting there with an open mind and an open heart and saying, what new will I explore today? What new thing will I learn today? And I'm always, always, always on the lookout for something new, some new food. So, for example, there's something called, I'm going to say this terribly. It's called, I think, bondegi. Bondegi? Okay, everyone who's Korean, please don't send her tweets and emails. That's all my fault. But basically, they are pupae, pupae of, uh, you know, a bug an insect and they are sold on the street and you eat them in Korea with uh, their street food. And people thought I was crazy, but that, you know, I went on the hunt for them because I had them canned and they were terrible. So I went on the hunt for them when I'm in Korea because I want to have that experience. I want to know, and I don't have to love something to appreciate it. But I also, I'm not, I'm not a fear factor person. I'm not sitting there, you know, wanting to eat the caterpillars just to say the caterpillars. I want to eat the caterpillars. If I see someone on the street eating the caterpillars and it brings them joy, or they say, this has been my favorite food since I was a kid, I want to try that too. And I want to, I want to experience that as well. Yeah. So. yeah, I see what you're saying. It's not that you're doing things on a dare, but rather you're trying to participate a little bit in someone's experience and learn a little something from it and just kind of have that for yourself. I'm not sure to experience things other people do because they are gross or scary or formidable. They cease to be gross or scary or formidable to me when you see the light in somebody's eyes or when you see someone talking about the different way they prepare them or how their mother makes this for Christmas. I was in, you know, you'll be able to say, I'm not even going to attempt this one because I'm going to, I'm going to throw this one to you. So I was at El Cardenal in Mexico City a few, couple months ago. And the person I was with said, Sandra, she says, you have to try this. It is ant larvae. Mm -hmm. And, and so I had it kind of in an egg. It was like a, not quite an omelet, but it was, it was kind of like a formed fried egg, a bit like an omelet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing and awesome and wonderful. And she was disappointed because I think she wanted me to be grossed out or be like, okay, I'll, I'll try. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'll try it. And I'm like, I'm like, well, tell me about it. That's always I'm going to say. I did not try something else though. That was truly bizarre to me, but I will be trying it the next time I'm there in season. It's a stuffed pepper with fruit and pomegranate and um, so like a chile relleno, relleno but with pomegranate and fruit and then it's got like kind of a sugary glaze on top of this and it was the strangest thing i've ever seen and then by the time she had done telling me the story if i wasn't already following the ant larvae i would have been all about it but el cardinal i'm coming back yes that's have my favorite one restaurant. have one ready just tell me when it's in season yes absolutely yeah okay wow so you're talking about the future you know like you're always open to new things what what are you looking forward to in 2020 what does the coming year look like for you in your imagination or hopes at least? You know, professionally, I have things that I would like to accomplish. There, there are certain projects I would like to finish or I'd like to, to get done. I certainly have places that I have either not explored enough or I would like to explore more. Africa is one. Latin America is another. Well, specifically South America. I've spent most of my time in Central America. I don't know if there are goals for 2020 because I spent almost 10 years saying I was going to go to Australia 
that year. <laughs> and by the time I got there, it was so incredibly expensive that I was so grateful that I failed every nine, all nine years before and <laughs> went when I had the money and the time I was able to go for three and a half weeks. And I said, how could I have ever come for five days? And I would have sat there crying at the $11 Happy Meal and the $4 Snickers bar and, and the vending machine. So I don't really have timelines for myself, but I know what my, I know what I'd like for the future. I'd like for the future to explore Africa, North, Northern Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. I would like to spend more time in South America proper, whether that is uh, Argentina or Chile, Peru, Bolivia. I think that for a lot of a lot of the reasons I'm so vague is so much of my life has been a happy surprise. I get a new job or a new client, or I meet a new friend who says, come visit me. And so uh, I've done a pilot for a travel show. So if that takes off, I might be able to pick, choose my own adventure. But I stay open because I don't want to say, I've always wanted to go to Buenos Aires. Well, I mean, I never get to go to Buenos Aires. But if I get to go to Caracas, that's a powerful thing for me, too. And I should have just as much joy and excitement about it if I get to go to Lima. You know, I'm staying open. To all those things. So whether it's Cairo or Johannesburg or bust, I didn't think I'd ever spend so much time in the Middle East as I have. But, you know, professional work and family that moved there meant that I was going in and out of the UAE on a regular basis. And it is one of my favorite places in the entire world now. And if you ever need tips, Abu Dhabi, not Dubai. Make Dubai a day trip. Make Dubai a day trip. Spend your time in Abu Dhabi. Yes, I actually saw your pictures, and I can see why you say that. That's pretty cool. Pro tip. Plus, it's 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 more culturally resonant. It's also more international because it's the capital. And Dubai is designed almost for tourists and expats. So you can go and see. It's like visiting Vegas. You can do that. But Abu Dhabi is where you're going to have the experience but still have everybody speak English. And you, but you can also still sort of visit more of the cultural things. And there's the Emirates Palace, man. I mean, it's a palace, so do that do that <laughs> have, have the uh, coffee with the gold leaf in it i mean you only live once right <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness well thank you so much ben for all of this and i hope that you and your family have the most beautiful holiday season i know you guys will celebrate you sure will we'll probably invent a new tradition and i'll tell you all about it the next time I yes talk. yes we will talk about new traditions on the next one <laughs> You can check out Ben's latest project, The Brink, on your favorite podcast listening platform. There's more information for you in the show notes and the show blog at meettheneighbor.com. Thanks for joining the conversation. We love to hear your stories. Meet the Neighbor is produced by Tanagam LLC. Our audio engineer is Diego Velasquez. I'm Laura Tamayo, and my friend is Ben Bryant. Happy holidays to you and yours. Talk to you next year. Bye.